Are you looking to achieve a high quality and full life? You're in the right place. Welcome to Heightened Living with your host, Austin Floyd. What is going on, guys? I got some birds right now actually trying to fly into this window. This is uh, pretty hilarious. But today's podcast is with James Fell, who was actually he's been writing articles for the Los Angeles Times since 2010, the Chicago Tribune since 2012, had columns with Ask Men, been published in Time magazine, all around health and fitness. But what we talked about today was his newest book, The Holy Shit Moment, and really it dives a lot deeper into the reasons that we as humans do something or don't do something and how we can actively call this holy shit moment this moment of oh my god it's time to change my life for the better into our periphery get it to work for us and then act as though we have had it happen because likely we have which allows us to get to that next point in our lives so this is an awesome podcast and we really do dive deep into not only the neuroscience behind these moments that you know change your life forever but also around the mindset and the, the feel that you will actually have as these things happen. I know a lot of people, when they hear, oh, you know, that moment changed my life forever, they don't really understand what it means because it comes down to how you feel and experience it while it's happening. So we dive into that as well. It's a great podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure to head over to iTunes. Give this podcast a rating, and otherwise, I don't want to waste any more of your time. So let's jump into the show. Perfect. Boom. There we go. Thank you, James, for coming on the podcast. I got to start with the first question, which is, what is your favorite superhero? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I've always really liked Spider-Man for some reason. I, I just thought he was cool. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that's, you know, strangely enough, the last guest said Spider-Man as well. Hmm. Yeah, it was the the whole being able to climb walls and jump really far and and being strong and and the swinging on webs. I don't know. I just I, I really dug it. Awesome. No, totally. So being on walls, jumping far with everything leading up to the holy shit moment. How did you get to where you are today? Where did that journey begin? Well, one of the things about the the book is that it in some ways it seems like this miraculous transformation and that's one of the things in society that people really are drawn to after writing about health and fitness and weight loss for 10 years people love this concept of quick and easy one of the things i'm clear about right in the introduction of the book is that you have to commit yourself to the reality that accomplishing any type of lofty goal takes a metric shit ton of work and uh but and that's something that you can't change. I mean, you can be efficient about certain things, but if you want to do something amazing, you are going to have to log the hours, days, weeks, months, and years in order to achieve that. However, the one thing that can change very quickly and effortlessly is your attitude towards doing that work, where it comes to uh, to feel like destiny rather than drudgery, something that you feel compelled to do and are passionate and inspired to achieve where the work comes to seem like play that you're extraordinarily passionate about and motivation is no longer a scarce resource. 
And that was what happened with me in my 20s, where I'd been a lazy guy pretty much my entire life, hadn't done really anything. Uh, and and then suddenly in, in a massive wave of emotion where I was in a bit of a state of despair, uh, found this drive to, um, to become a hard worker and make something of my life. And uh, many, uh, a few decades later, things are going well. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems you had uh, an awesome journey writing for all the different publications, fitness, everything along those lines, and uh, even kind of helping to redefine what masculinity is. Um, with that, with that, you know, that quick moment, that attitude change, the mindset change, what was that main driver? And, you know, how did that really play into, I guess, setting your life up for everything that it's become since then? One of the things that I talk about in the book is called crystallization of discontent. Now, this isn't something that always has to take place, but there's a lot of different things that can cause these, these life-changing epiphanies. What, you know, as the title says, I refer to as a holy shit moment that changes your life. And, but a, a powerful one and a common one is called crystallization of discontent where there's, there's things in your life that are bothering you and they're, they're weighing you down or, or there, there are lots of different things where it just doesn't feel right. And, uh, and sometimes it's so bad where you achieve a breaking point. Other times it's just sort of a general sense of malaise or like you feel like life is good, but it could be amazing. And that's what happened with me where, um, you know, I was, I was in debt. I was flunking out of school and about to be kicked out. I was overweight. I was drinking too much. And uh, I had a feeling that if I got kicked out of school, my relationship with my girlfriend was doomed mm -hmm. because she was a straight A student. She was destined for med school. And that was the thing that really put the fear into me was the, the possibility that I might lose her if I didn't get my shit together. And, and I read something very profound in my university newspaper that as soon as I read it, it takes all these little different pieces in your brain and it allows them to coalesce with a sudden insight of, yes, this is the answer. And, uh, and there's this overwhelming feeling of rightness and a wave of emotion that comes along with it where you know that this is something that you must do. In my case, it was reading a simple motivational quote by, of all people, folk singer Joan Baez. Mm -hmm. And the quote was, action is the antidote to despair. And I read that and I thought, man, I've been a lazy piece of shit <laughs> in my yeah, whole yeah. life. <laughs> and, and all of these problems that currently face me are problems that I can fix if I just get off my ass and work at them, which isn't to say that, you know, that's the same situation for everybody. I'm not one of those, oh, you just got to do it, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But in my case, that was the reality, that if I did pull myself up by my own bootstraps, I could fix these problems. And as soon as I, I realized that, I said, yeah, I, I can do this. I just have to, I just have to stop putting so much effort into doing nothing and, uh, and it came with this wave of, of alleviation from despair, knowing that although I still had all these problems that I was facing, the light was seen at the end of the tunnel where I could see that, yep, I'm going to fix all of this crap and, and everything's going to be okay. And that's, that's what happened because I got off my ass and instead of going to the pub, I went to the registrar's office to 
book an appointment to beg my way out of my failing report card. (laughs) (laughs) That's yeah. I've actually had, I guess similar in a sense. Uh, It was more in high school, you know, feeling depressed, um, gained a bunch of weight, didn't have many friends. It actually was Tim Ferriss's four hour work week. And I was like, wait, you could actually like change everything about your life and how it goes. And it was like that moment that was like, okay, the match just, you know, hit the tender and now everything is sparking. It's perfect. From there, it was that generation of momentum that just kept me on more of the mind wave. I wouldn't say like the direct path that I want because, you know, you always get hit back and forth. But that mind state that I was like, this is the perfect route to go and to understand that life is so malleable and that you have the ability to change it. But I want to go back to when you were talking about uh, how your attitude and mindset behind things is a lot of times either the limiting factor or the thing that can really help you. Um, I, I tend to look at when you're doing just about anything, effort is the main driver. And if you're going to do it or if you won't do it, and it doesn't even have to be immediate effort. It can be later effort. How do you look at effort and energy and how that plays into, you know, your attitude and mindset for doing these really hard to do tasks? Well, there's, um, there's the, the old saying that, you know, persistence pays off Mm. and, but you, you have to be making, you have to be working in the right way. Like there's, there's plenty of people out there that work hard day after day, but it's not necessarily taking them in the direction that they want to go. The important thing is to be living a life that's, that's true to your own real self and your identity and values of the type of person that you feel deep down that you want to be. The problem is that we have a society that has all these different expectations of us that quite often we end up trapped in these lives that we're not really sure that that's the direction we should be going in. And, uh, and we end up putting effort into things that we shouldn't necessarily be doing. And as a result, then we, we end up needing this sort of mindless downtime. The, the amount of time that your average North American spends in, time, in front of a screen <laughs> in mindless you know, television watching or net surfing or whatever uh, is, is astounding. It's it's. Yeah four hours a day for the average American. And I think it's just over three hours a day for the average Canadian that, and that's not, that's it. That's just TV. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we're, we're not passionately pursuing something that we feel that we're meant to do. There was a Gallup poll last year that said that fewer than a third, it might only be 25% actually of your average American worker feels satisfied with their job, (laughs) feels that they're, they're, enjoying their work and and engaged in something that they feel that they should be doing. And it doesn't always come down to money. I mean, for me, like I'd been working in um, the business field. I ended up getting, you know, I went from flunking out of school to getting two master's degrees. (laughs) And, uh, and one of those master's degrees was an MBA. And I chose that because I thought, okay, I want, I, I like money. I want to make money. Not that I was super passionate about business, but but I thought this is this is a good route for me. So I got my MBA. I worked in business for a dozen years, and I was I was doing very well. I didn't love the work. Didn't hate it, but it was it was okay. But the one thing my other degrees had been in history, and I, and the one thing I loved about doing a bachelor's and master's in history was the writing, and and I thought 
at the age of 40 is I, I told my wife, I said, if I don't try and make it as a writer, I'm going to die. <laughs> Those are the exact words that I said. And she was very supportive. And, you know, financially, we took a hit as a result, but we budgeted for it. We planned for it. Mm -hmm. And I threw myself into it. And before long, I had a column with the Los Angeles Times, and I was getting published in, in major publications and big book deals and, and all that kind of stuff and, and a very popular blog. And, and, uh, and that was because I was just, I, I was so driven and passionate about that work in a way that I'd never been about anything ever before because I felt like this is my destiny is to, is to be a writer and, and I will do everything I can to get as good at I can, as I can at it, as well as not just, not just doing a good work, but finding ways to, to make money at it and, and grow it as a business and, and get more and more organizations being willing to pay me to do this. And, and I think that people need to take a long look at themselves as to, okay, what are you doing with your life in, in terms of your day-to-day your -day existence? And is it, is it fulfilling you or is it wearing you down? And, and are there changes that you can make that, uh, you know, you can go to that daily job that allows you to buy the latest iPhone or whatever. And, uh, and I mean, I had an iPhone 4 until it was freaking it's nice dead <laughs> like i had it for a long time <laughs> just because like ah, i don't need the latest thing you know I, I don't need to fill my life with technological crap or or whatever and and uh you know my prized possession is a six-year-old road bike that, yeah <laughs> that, there, there's there's different ways of living that you know each day i enjoy getting up and spending time writing and communicating with people via the written word. And then because I've got flexibility, if it's a nice day, I can, I can go for a bike ride or if it snowed a bunch in the mountains, I can say, screw it. I'm not working today. I'm going skiing. And, uh, and my forties were, were awesome <laughs> because I made that change. And now I've just turned 50 and it just keeps getting better. So it's, uh, it's something to consider this, this reevaluation of, you know, what are you doing? day after day and is it is it fulfilling for you yeah seriously and i think throwing yourself into it is almost the only way just like a holy shit moment like where you're like okay now i'm here what do i do you know and i i believe i truly do believe that if there is something that you know that you want to do like you were saying i'm going to write or i'm going to die if you don't do it then you live life in that stagnant just murky water that no one knows what's going on you're like oh, i don't know i'm just going to take this stream yeah there's a um a quote uh oh geez i i i forget who it is it's it's right in the introduction or, or chapter one i quote so many people, <laughs> philosophers and and authors and i'm sure someone's going to hear me say this and say well it's that guy obviously uh the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation hmm. And uh, of course, now I, I could Google it and, and any listeners can feel free to Google it. But the, the name of the author escapes me. I think it was in the 19th century. And, uh, and there, there's so many people that, that have the, that, that die with the song still in their hearts. Of, mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're trying, there's another quote in the book of so many people trying to tiptoe safely to death. And, you know, what if you could live in a different way where, you know, hopefully many years from now, you made it unsafely to death where life was more yeah. of an adventure and a thrill ride and you took those risks. Now, that being said, um, there, there's, 
there's merit in practicality and not just, you know, driving off a cliff because James said so. Uh, one book that I really enjoyed in term that I read while researching this book and that I quote from regularly is called Thinking Fast and Slow yes. by Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman. And he talks about the, the system one and system two methods of thinking, which, this, which my book is, is very much built around. The life-changing epiphany that strikes out of nowhere and fills you with that passion to do this thing, whatever this thing is, is system one. It's the fast way of thinking that is based on more the unconscious drivers and the, the thing that comes with a lot of emotion and a lot of sense of rightness. Um, but system two is the background player, the slow, methodical, uh, rational thinker is the thing that gives you that confirmation that yes, this is the right thing to do because it's, it's got all those bits and pieces of information in the brain that are able to give you that confirmation that it's one of the things that makes the epiphany so powerful because of the fact that it comes with this sense of, yes, this is right. This is absolutely what I must do. That being said, that after that, that wave of emotion comes of your, your destiny being laid out before you, that's when you really start to rely on system two for the enacting of the vision. Because these, these, these system one driven epiphanies are rarely concrete. They're, they're based much more on emotion and, um, and, and, and they're pretty fuzzy around the edges and, and it's just sort of a general direction that they point you in. System two is very critical in order to find the practical path to enact that vision that allows you to find out a way that, that okay, um, you know, sometimes it's very simple, like I got to get out of this relationship. Uh, okay, well, if you're in a tight financial straits, you need to figure out the best way to do that that doesn't destroy your life or the, you know, the lives of your children or something like that. Or I need to do, I need to quit this job and do this other job all right, that's, that's cool. How are you going to do that where you can still be able to eat? <laughs> and yeah. in my case, actually, the, I kind of lucked out when I decided that I, I, I had to become a writer. I'd been working in business for, for about a decade and, and an opportunity came up to take on a, a, a role as an executive director for a not-for-profit where they only wanted me 20 hours per week. Mm. And for those 20 hours per week, it still paid quite well. And I thought, oh, I can do that. I could do that job for 20 hours a week and start my writing career at the same time for the, for the other you know, 20. It ended up being like another 30 or 40 hours a week because I just liked it so much. And, uh, and so I did that, that executive director role for a couple of years and still brought in a very decent income while I struggled to get my, my writing career off the ground. And then once the writing career was going well enough, then I, I, I stopped doing that job and then just dedicated all of my time to writing. And so that, that was just an example of putting system two to work to find a logical path that allowed me to do it without, without having too major a, of a financial hit. Totally. Yeah, that's yeah, and that's what a lot of people are worried about that that vast and quick change, where it's like, hey, I'm leaving my job to start this new thing. And you're like, well, cool. Do you have a plan? Or like, you'll see online all the time now, people in like forums or uh, like 14 year olds on YouTube channels, and they're like, 
hey, I saw you didn't go to college and you did well. Do I think, do I need to go to college? And it's like, <laughs> uh, well, it's not a linear question. You can't just be like, yeah, no, uh-uh, okay. And one of the things that we're, that's worth talking about in this is in chapter four of the book is the, um, the neuroscience behind the life-changing epiphany. Because, I mean, I didn't just write this. It's, it's not all about me. It's mostly about other people that have had this experience with interviews from um, you know, world-leading researchers in psychology and neuroscience and behavior change that uh, the reason why this is so powerful and why it keeps driving us month after month, year after year, is neurochemical in origin. So if you have this life-changing epiphany that, that awakens part of your brain to say, this is what I have to do, it comes with a massive rush of dopamine and usually opioids as well. Dopamine is called the neuromodulator of exploration, where it prompts you to seek out things that have great potential benefit for you. And when you find that vision of what it is you have to do, the dopamine rush is massive. And then often it comes with an opioid rush as well so that it's very exciting and it feels really good where you're like, yes, I got to do this. And what keeps you going afterwards is sort of like an IV drip of dopamine because dopamine recognizes progress. So when you have this vision, of what it is that you need to do. And then every tiny little thing that you do day after day that is just a baby step towards achieving that vision is a little, a little drip of dopamine into your brain that says, yep, we're doing it. We're on the right path. Keep going. Keep going. So it's all about that um, enforcing adherence where as an example for like with, with entrepreneurship, you get these people that decide that they're going to launch a new business and and they're extraordinarily driven putting in long hours day after day after day and and it's the, the amount of progress that they make doesn't seem like it's that significant but it, it's just very slow and steady they're not making much money the business isn't really growing it's not taking off but the, but it's incremental it's just tiny little bits of advancement and then all of a sudden, one day, kablammo, things really start to take off. And people are like, wow, you're an overnight sensation. And they're like, no, I was working on this for years, but I always knew it was going to work. And I was never willing to give up because I was just getting that little recognition of progress in my brain that kept me going. Now, tying back to your, your previous statement, when you have that vision, um, it doesn't mean that you need to launch into it the next day. It doesn't mean that you need to, if you have this vision that I want to do this with my life, um, that doesn't mean you need to walk into your office and tell your boss, I quit. I mean, maybe it does, <laughs> but, yeah. it, but, it, but it doesn't have to be that. It can be, okay, I'm going to do this. Put system two to work. Find out what is the rational path. You can do those baby steps and still fulfill that vision and do it in a rational way where you still get to pay your rent, still get to eat, feed your family, whatever, and, and find a way or even adapt it a little bit, just saying, you know, okay, that vision really seems great, but, but there's roadblocks that I've since discovered that make it less practical. So how do we find a way around that, those roadblocks? Like, um, you know, one of the interesting things with me w was that, uh, you know, in my thirties, I thought, you know, I really like 
I really like writing and I, I want to be a novelist. I want to write science fiction. And I did some investigation and found out that A, I'm not a very good science fiction writer. <laughs> and B, the amount of money to be made as a novelist, unless you're one of the extraordinarily rare, outstanding few, is not very much money at all. Conversely, when I started to look at health and fitness writing, I could yeah. see myriad opportunities to make a good living that would allow me to do it full time. And suddenly, suddenly I'm like, well, health and fitness are something I'm really passionate about. I'm going to write about that instead. And then, um, and then as that evolved, you know, with this, with this latest book, I expanded it beyond health and fitness because I'd always been interested in motivation. I didn't care nearly so much about squat technique or how many reps of bench press you had to do uh, as I did about what gets people off the couch and out the door to exercise and what motivates them to eat properly. So I was always very much a motivation guy. And then with this book, I, I decided I'm going beyond health and fitness now into general life motivation to do anything. And you know what? One day, now that I've got many more years of writing experience and I'll have enough money to retire before too long, I may decide to go back and now that I don't need the money, maybe I will write a novel. I don't think it's going to be science fiction, but I think, you know, what the hell? If it sucks and no one buys it, it won't matter. True. I mean, as long as you're doing what you want to do. But yeah, no, it's very interesting with the huge dopamine spike, a little bit of opioids. It's very uh, resemblant of, quote unquote, falling in love as well. Mm -hmm. And how that's one of those uh, similar moments. But the one area that I now, you know, flashing back to what you were talking about, most Americans spending four hours in front of the TV, it comes down to these algorithms are getting so good with learning how to influence dopamine and then keep you out of almost what seems to be that uh, thinking step two that you were referring to as well from uh, thinking fast and slow where you're not like logically going through everything that you're doing, you're planning, getting set up, but you're getting almost that step one spike over and over and over again, watching TV as someone else fulfills the thing that you truly want to do. And, and Facebook is bad for that too. And video games, all sorts of video games to, they just want to keep you in front of the screen. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where I think, you know, when you get that moment, start the planning of it, not necessarily do it, but don't let yourself fall into the monotony of the trail everybody's walking on, even though you see the things to the right and left and you're like, hey, I would way rather be over there, but you're like, but everyone's walking this way, so it's easier, I'll follow that. Yeah. One of the things that I wanna communicate to your listeners in terms of, okay, well, so you're talking about these life-changing epiphanies, how do I have one? It, since we're bringing up screen time, is the, um, it's it's very clear in the book about some steps about that you can take in order to dramatically increase the likelihood that you have such a life-changing epiphany. And a lot of it has to do with distraction techniques mm -hmm. because how these things work is that if you want to reevaluate what it is that you're doing with your life, and it can have something to do with your body, your relationship, your career, your mood, battling addiction, any number of things. The setup is via analysis. So there is homework that needs to be done where you start looking at, okay, what are, what are the possibilities for me to moving forward? 
and not just rationally analyze these things, but emotionally analyze them. Instead of always just thinking about the logical um, bits of data that you need to analyze, you need to really take a look at how you feel about them. And what you do, this is uh, from a book by um, John Cuneos and Mark Beeman, who were a pair of psychology professors that did the, uh, a bunch of very fascinating um, brain science studies of what happens during the, the moment of sudden insight mm. using fMRI and EEG scans of the brain. And they said that the way that it works is that you analyze, analyze, analyze until you get stuck and you're just not sure what the answer is. And then you stop and you engage in distraction because the epiphany comes not during the analytical phase. It comes during the distraction phase. And the way that people, there's lots of different ways that you can distract yourself. You can, uh, a great one is just get outside and go for a walk. And most importantly, leave your phone at home. <laughs> so, although if you do have to take your phone because, you know, in case of emergencies, put it on, do not disturb and don't look at it because you just need to be able to be alone in your own head and let these ideas meander and collide. And eventually things can coalesce into something truly profound that allows you to wake up that part of your brain that says, yes, this is the piece of the puzzle that I've been missing. This is the answer to my problem. Man, yeah. And that's one of those things that when you take that break, you know, it's it's being thought about in the background. A lot of people are like, oh, no, but I need to, you know, push through, push through, endure. A lot of times then it comes in a dream or some yes, weird absolutely. time. There were, there's an example in the book of a Nobel Prize winner, Otto Louis who, uh, or Otto Lowy, I believe it's pronounced, uh, who was, what was he was researching about? It was, it was something to do with, it was biomedical, I believe, was what it was in reference to, that he'd had a dream one night that was a, uh, an, that, that he, he felt that he had to try this thing and he woke up in the middle of the night and he scribbled down some notes and then, then he woke up in the morning and damn it, he couldn't read his notes. <laughs> so like, ah, crap. The next night he had the same dream. And instead of scribbling down his notes, he got up and he went down to his lab and he started conducting experiments. And the result of those experiments from this dream ended up winning him the Nobel prize. And I'm, I can't remember precisely what it was, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it had to do, I think it might've had to do something with diabetes treatment or, mm. or it was, it was something biomedical in some way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, I love writing down my dreams. I think it's one of those things that most people don't realize, like you're solving problems in your dreams, like the other version of you, whatever that is in your mind. For, for me, a lot of them come on a bike ride. <laughs> That's where I get my good ideas. Yeah. I mean, but again, your mind probably has that ability to like shift into alpha or beta during that time yeah. and then just go into this amazing thought process. And I mean, I know a lot of people that they like to listen to podcasts when they go for walks and or, or runs or bike rides. And for me, I mean, there's so much time when I am in a, uh, an analytical state of social media, 
writing something or watching TV where there, there's, there's something that is demanding my attention. Mm. And a podcast is one of those things that demands my attention. So when I go for a run or I go for a bike ride, that's my time to be alone in my own head. And I'll listen to music, but these are like, you know, a lot of classic rock songs that I've heard hundreds of times. So, so they're not demanding my attention. And you get in this, what's called soft fascination where you're, you're out in the environment and it doesn't demand your attention, but it seduces it. And it allows you to just let the unconscious come to the surface with these ideas that have been percolating for ages, perhaps, that allow them to burst through to the surface and become your conscious thoughts. And I think that we need to allow ourselves these distracted states where you're not afraid to be in your own head and you don't need somebody talking in your ear to, you have to allow these ideas to come to the surface. If you've constantly got some type of information coming at you to distract you from daily life, it's not going to happen. No. And I have to think that this constant stimulation, even a music is so unnatural to what we would like you know, in the previous days experience based on just walking around and, you know, hearing actual sounds that are happening around, even though we can recreate acoustics well when it comes to headphones and stuff, it distracts the mind to the point like where you literally aren't thinking. I think it becomes a comfort place for most people to go and, you know, always have music playing or always have a podcast going or always have some sort of stimuli via sound that, can take over that mental barrier. Yeah, we're afraid of that we might get bored. <laughs> yeah. And um, that's, you know, like I can, when I go for a run, for example, I'm good for about an hour and then I'm like, all right, I'm kind of starting to get bored here. But I go for a bike ride, my legs give out before my brain does. Mm. I can go for hours just because, and I think it has to do with the cycling is more exciting, it's faster it's more intense The you know, just the sheer distances covered are, are much greater so that you see a lot more scenery. And, and because of that, like, I think that you just need to get used to the idea that, that you can go out and, and go for a walk or a run or a bike ride or do something outside snowshoeing, cross country skiing, whatever that, that you don't have to have this distraction of uh, some person nattering in your ear about whatever podcast you downloaded or whatever, or on Facebook, checking the latest, you know, how many likes you got on your, your most recent post or what's in your feed or, or, you know, Ooh, let's take a picture of this and post it to Instagram. Ooh, what do people say about that? Leave the goddamn phone alone, <laughs> you know, leave it, at, leave it at home and, and just let those thoughts meander and collide. And that that's how these types of epiphanies arise. Totally. Yeah. It's with those state changes too. Like when I do the sauna for 20, 25 minutes and then jump into the cold shower, that state change with no external stimuli, I get some of my best ideas. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's, I, I love uh, tampering with different state changes and seeing how my mind works. Cause I'll notice a lot of times I have no sound on, but it's almost like I do have sound on cause my mind's like just thinking of all these things. And then I ground myself and I'm like, Whoa, that was kind of ridiculous. <laughs> it's our minds are awesome and amazing things. So I do want to ask, do you have any higher leverage skills that 
really come to mind that have helped you throughout, you know, your process of getting to this point of writing the book and a high leverage skill is something like learning to learn pattern recognition or the ability to, you know, learn a skill. It's whatever this skill is for you that you can pick up and kind of put in different areas. And it always is applying and easy for you to call on that tool to use. Um, I, I would say yes. And uh, I, I address this a bit in the, in the book, not my personal anecdote, but mm -hmm. from a, there was a researcher in um, self-determination theory, Kenan Sheldon, uh, it's a psychology professor. And he talked about how we have these, um, these built-in skills that, and, and abilities that may be trying to tell us something and trying to burst through to the surface. And we just need to listen for what those things are. And it got me thinking about what my own might be because, you know, growing up, I was, uh, I don't know if I was an introverted guy, but I, I liked, I was a big daydreamer. I, re I really liked to, uh, to just fantasize about different things and tell myself stories. So I was more likely to sort of hang out by myself and, and, uh, and, you know, be, be, I guess, a little bit introverted in that way. And then after I had my life-changing moment where I decided that I was going to get my shit together and start working hard at school, that was when I found myself drawn to studying history. Not because I was, you know, super driven about history itself, but because history was the one thing that allowed me to write papers that allowed me to tell stories that even as academic analysis you could write about you know the battle of britain and you can write a good story about the battle of britain because it's exciting stuff and that was the thing that 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 tied back to those sort of daydreaming fantasies that i had that i liked creating these stories in my head and this was a way that I, as academic practice allowed me to do that and then afterwards I did an MBA and I was drawn to more marketing type of stuff where again, marketing, even for some technology product is telling a story. So it allowed me to keep doing that. And then, then I became a, a full-time writer and that was just the fruition of something that I'd been doing my entire life of this was this, this skill that I'd had as, as a young child that had always been yearning to break through to the surface and, and I think that it's one of those things that people need to analyze of what are these, these latent buried abilities that we, we have that maybe we don't realize that we have that we could put to use that would genuinely make us happy. Yeah. Wow. So storytelling is, oh man, I love that because storytelling is so crucial. And it's one of those things that when you really learn how to do it, you can tell stories for days and get yourself to do almost anything based on this is the story of who I am. Mm -hmm. So on top of that, I want to ask right now, is there anything that you've been questioning, which, you know, it could be the political climate, how doorknobs work, you know, why chairs are made the way they are, but <laughs> all in all, what it really comes down to is, there's mass consensus and everybody's going like, yeah, it works that way. And you're like, I don't really think it works that way. Hmm. Um, well, I mean, one of the things that, that I'm becoming a little more questionable about, questionable about is, is runaway capitalism. I suppose <laughs> that, you know, there, there, I'm seeing a lot of this on Facebook 
that you've got maybe that your libertarian type of thinkers on one end, and then you've got your anti-capitalists on the other end that, uh, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. I mean, I did get this MBA and, and I want people to buy my book. I like money, <laughs> you know, these, these types of things. And, uh, and I think that there's gotta be, yeah, me being a Canadian, we're, we're a little more restrained in the way that, uh, in, in terms of what our government will allow companies to, to get away with. We didn't have nearly as big a financial meltdown in 2008 as the United States did because there were better government regulations trying to keep those, uh, those banking organizations from, from imploding the way that they did. And then you look at some, um, some Scandinavian countries and you think, Oh, you know, they're pretty happy over there. And, uh, they, but they, they, they tax the shit out of them, but, mm-hmm. but the people seem like they're doing okay compared to some other countries. So these are things that, that, you know, I, I don't necessarily know the answers to, but I, I'm asking a lot of questions as to, to which systems are better than others and how can we change that, uh, that, one of the things I see in the United States that is a greater bipolarization of society. My master's thesis was about um, rebellion and revolution in Latin America. Mm. And one of the things that we saw in the 1960s with so many rebellions um, rising up was because they had a tremendous bipolarization of society with you know, a very small percentage of society having most of the wealth and then the rest of the society being dirt poor that that's going to lead to strife. And I look at what's happening in a lot of countries around the world. And I think, you know, we are moving towards that. And that's very fearful for me that, uh, that, that the middle class is, is being destroyed. And the middle class is not a, a natural thing that just happens. It's something that actually needs to be created mm. via strong governmental policies that allows wealth to be distributed in a way that's a a little more fair and at the same time i think you know people that that work really hard and and do something really cool you know maybe i think they do deserve a a greater share of wealth and buying cool stuff that they want to buy uh so how do we balance that all out where people are inspired and motivated to want to make money but at the same time we don't have so many people just getting utterly screwed and and with no ability to advance. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah, I I think about this stuff all the time because honestly like money comes down to value, but there's these certain instances which how can someone be, you know, let's say a billion times more valuable than someone else in a sense. Yeah. I mean, I think that you look at just about any billionaire like mm-hmm. billionaires when when you when you try and fathom just how much money a billion dollars is if someone was able to make billions of dollars chances are they didn't do it in the most ethical way possible yeah. <laughs> to make that much money you got to be willing to screw some people over and yeah. i'm not saying we need to get rid of all billionaires but it does this is a problem the the disparity of wealth is something that is very concerning to me and i only see it as getting worse not better yeah, it's one of those it's one of those things that people don't kind of want to touch, but it becomes just an ideology of I guess where are we going? Why are we going there? What is it for? You know, with AI and all that coming about too, it's gonna to change the way everything works. 
Yep. And so the disparity of wealth, who knows, it might literally change from wealth to electric or from money to electricity. Cause if you have electricity, you can power your AI and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so it'll become a weird, <laughs> a weird world. And that was one of the reasons why I, I was and still I'm so an, uh, enamored and fascinated with science fiction is that it tries to answer some of those questions. There's a, one of my greatest influences as a writer is a science fiction author named John Varley. And, uh, and he wrote a great book called Steel Beach that, uh, that tries to answer some of those, those financial questions and, and sort of the guaranteed basic income where it's like, you know, if, if machines can do everything, do we even need to work? And this is a few hundred years in the future. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, we could end up going towards that where we end up living in a society where no one actually really needs to work and everyone can, can eat. And, uh, and I mean, Star Trek yeah. talks about how, how we don't use money anymore. And, and no one's going to go hungry and, and people have a has shelter and that kind of thing. So uh, we need to consider that, that what is our economy or even is there going to be an economy going to look like? And what are people going to do to pass the time and give their lives value if it's not about making money? Yeah, it's, that's the interesting thing about UBI too is – if you give everyone the universal basic income, the one thing that I always wonder is, uh, have you seen any of the research on people who um, retire early and don't have a purpose and their health? They die. Yeah, <laughs> they, they die. die. <laughs> and so that's almost where I wonder with, if you do that and everybody theoretically grows comfortably, does do we see like a lot of things, a lot of people just kind of like, fade out in a sense because yeah. of the fact that there's no like I was broke and now I made a hundred million dollars like the bi biggest you know wealth uh, transfer ever like stuff like that where it's this crazy uh, dichotomy of like I guess there's no I, I don't know humans create everything so in a, in a sense we'll eventually just create some other strife or hardship. Like, Hey, you don't know yeah. as much as me. We'll, we'll figure something out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess we're, won't be that. we're a creative species. There, there'll be something figured out to pass the time. Um, one of the things I'm a little bit worried about is that we're seeing AI that can, that can write stories that are, that are, you know, they're not that good yet, but one day, hopefully not before I die, there may be artificial intelligence that can write novels that are as good as or better than something that a human can create. And what's that going to do for all the aspiring novel novelists out there? The answer is, I don't know. Yeah. That's, I, I always think about that because I know they're generating uh, pictures right now. They can generate music. The one thing that I truly believe is the reason that most of us connect with writers, with uh, painters, with, musicians is we know them they know us in a sense and we can both you know feel and experience whatever that work was together i think mm -hmm. it's almost impossible if you take a machine unless you know you sometime somehow humanize the machine and everyone's like oh that's you know john the machine um it's got to be almost impossible. mr data i mean yeah. everybody liked mr data on star trek yeah mr data <laughs> Man, that Mr. Data is a scary one in reality. He's got yeah. everyone's data. <laughs> but so besides that, besides money, is there anything that you've been obsessed with currently? 
Um, you know, just trying to, trying to enjoy life on a daily basis where I get to, um, get to do stuff that I want while I'm still young enough to enjoy it. I guess I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm 50 years old now and I try to keep my body in really good shape, really good shape. Being the, the health and fitness writer guy mm-hmm. for, from days gone past, I, I do have a, a lot of motivation and in, in that regard. And I don't, I don't work really long hours. <laughs> it's uh, if it's a nice day, I'm going to go for a bike ride or if there's a big dump of powder, I'm going to go skiing. And, uh, and yeah, it's, you know, my kids are, are growing up and I, I want to spend time with them while they're still living at home. And I want to spend time with my wife and, and, uh, and see the world while I'm not yet in a wheelchair. So the, those are, uh, the, the clock is ticking. There's, there's stuff that I still want to do before I'm too old to enjoy it. Well, that's an awesome obsession is to spend more time and really focus on the day. So and boom so that was a podcast with james fell his new book the holy shit moment will be available from saint martin's press on january 22nd otherwise you can visit his site at bodyforwife.com you'll see links there to get the book you can follow him same twitter handle body for wife facebook handle body for wife otherwise have a fantastic rest of your day Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Heightened Living with your host, Austin Floyd. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe. And for more great content and to stay up to date, visit HeightenedLiving.com on Facebook at Heightened Living. We'll catch you next time.